And now, from our studios in Kansas City, Sci-Fi For Me Radio is live from the bunker. All right, listen, um, everybody, everybody check your equipment. Uh, we had a little bit of a scare there, JR. Don't do that to us. Wait a minute, what do you mean there's no audio? We're all looking around here in the studio. Where's the override? The override. Welcome, everybody. We are live from the bunker. Happy to have all of you with us. My name is Jason Hodd. I'm the editor here at Sci-Fi For Me. And we've got uh, a busy week so far. Everything's been going kind of, kind of, really just going and going and going. So we continue that today. Give a shout out to everybody who is listening to us as a podcast. Uh, there's several places where you can hear us, but I do want you to check out the live video. We're on YouTube, Odyssey, Rumble, and Twitch. So, uh, so check that out. Because occasionally we have stuff you can look at, but it doesn't really translate well to radio. Anyway, all right. So we've also got the Discord you can sign up for. If, if you're not here live, you can always leave a comment. Of course, the email address, live from the bunker at sci-fi4me.com. And this week, today, we have a band twofer. Yesterday, we had Tony Weisskopf on. She's the publisher at, uh, at Bayon Books. And today... Uh, we are going to be talking about one of the books that's currently just been published by bands called Time Trials by M.A. Rothman and D.J. Butler. And they both are here to uh, cuss and discuss, and we'll see what happens. Welcome, gentlemen. Howdy, howdy. Thanks for having us. I see that if we want to get quoted in your in your promo uh, video, <laughs> we need to say, that's a good question. <laughs> I'm going to say that a lot. Okay, that sounds good. Now, um, for those of you who don't know, and and David, you may not remember this. Dave, uh, we interviewed Dave when he was here in Kansas City at Worldcon way back in the day. I mean, this was what now uh, eight years ago. Two thousand? What? No, two thousand was 2016. So almost seven years ago now. Uh, and you've been busy. You've both been busy. I mean, Mike, I see stuff uh, you you posting over on uh, on all of your socials and, and everything. You guys stay uh, pretty active. Did the lockdown affect any of the work you guys were doing? I mean, you guys all kind of kind of just kept going. It, it didn't really have any effect on on my productivity one way or the other. It it was a uh... Just another day, which was nice. No. Yeah, that's. I wish I could say the same. No. Uh, so, it had a dramatic effect on me, though. Maybe not in the ways you would think. So, my principal day job activity. I don't really have a day job. I have a portfolio of day job-like things. Uh, is corporate training, and that was dramatically reorganized by COVID. So it went from being a ninety-five percent in-person activity which had me traveling all the time to immediately being almost entirely uh, more, you know, more than 95% on zoom. And actually in the first instance, it sort of evaporated entirely for a few months. So uh, what happened in 2020 is I wrote four books, but then in 2021 
in 2022 as the business that had evaporated came back, uh, I didn't have as much time. So I, I had a surge in writing and then, and then a trough out of which I am now climbing. So yes, I was impacted. Yeah. Now, Dave, you've also done acquisitions because you've, you've done some stuff for that for over a ban. And, and now you guys have this, uh, this new book, Time Trials. I want to start there. Uh, with what this one is about, and uh, it starts here. The uh, this is the listing over on Band's website. The events of Earth's past may hold the key to Earth's salvation in the future. Uh, it's about an archaeologist who's not, or, or sorry, an Egyptologist rather, uh, who's gotten away from everything and gets dragged back in. It's one of those. You know, I, I try to get away, but they pull me back in type of story. So what what's the what's the Reader's Digest pre-see on this? So I, I guess I would approach it as this, because when we got together, this is our first collaboration. And, you know, I wanted as much as possible to bring to as wide an audience something that, you know, in the end, I think people will look at it as sort of an alt history mashup with science fiction and fantasy, really. But ultimately, it starts off really very much as a uh, as a thriller. Um, you know, it, it starts off with very Indiana Jones like look and feel for um, you know at least that's the feedback we get and. And it really is one of those things where we, we wanted to mash up our strengths, where Dave comes in from a fantasy and history background. I come in from a techno-thriller science background and put those together. And, um, you know, so far the, the responses have been pretty positive. So how did this collaboration come about? I mean, Dave, you got a number of titles over at Band, and and Mike, like you said, this is this is the first time you guys have worked together. But I, you've got you've known each other for a while now, haven't you? How did how did this? How did you guys finally decide? Well, you know what, we need to do something together. Yeah, uh, Mike Mike recruited me. I think is what happened. <laughs> uh, Mike Mike uh, had a. Uh, uh, a plan and a sabbatical. He had a little extra time. Had a, had a work sabbatical, and uh, reached out to me and said, "Hey, if we wrote a book together, what would it look like? I think there's some of this stuff we could incorporate." And and um, and uh, do you think you know Bain would pick it up? And I said, "Well, probably. You know, can I can guarantee nothing, but uh, so I, I think this is." Um, uh, one way to see this is sort of uh, a step forward in Mike's master plan to dominate uh, 21st century fiction. <laughs> and how is that plan going so far? Uh, well, um, <laughs> he's here, right? I met Mike. When did I meet you? 2016? 2017? Was it? Was it? Something like that, right? And I and. Yeah. Uh, I think you'd self-published a couple of books kind of experimentally, sort of see how it, but you didn't have anything that was like really out per se. Uh, right. And, um, uh, and yeah, now he's a multiple times a USA Today bestseller and, uh, um, and now also in bookstores with uh, Bain Books. So I think he's, he's doing all right. 
not good for, good for the kid. And, and let me well, let me ask you this because the the best you mentioned the USA USA bestseller stuff, and we've had a number of times people have talked about how the the New York Times bestseller list is not exactly as it's perceived. When you get on these lists, when you get on these bestseller lists, you get on these award nominations, all of that. How much of that can you use legitimately to market your work? I mean, is it does it have value for any of that still, or are we past that point? So, well, let's put it this way. Well, well, one of the litmus tests ends up being the people who land on a list. Do they use it in their marketing fodder? The answer is almost always yes. Yeah. Now, wh whether or not that is just superstition or not, um, yeah, I, I guess I would argue it usually doesn't sell a book. However, there will be a subset of the audience that will look at that and it lends some credibility for some small amount of people. So it, it, it's... I'd argue for 90% of the people you know that that are out there that are readers, it probably doesn't matter, but there are some that it might. Um, so, and and like I said, the litmus test is those who land on the list, um, you know, whatever list that might be. Do they use it? Almost always, yes. So it can't it, hurt. Yeah. Yeah. Certainly, writers behave as if it matters, right? I mean, you see it. You see. I don't know if they're still doing this, but for a few years there were these uh, these kind of uh, joint publishing clubs. It's not what they call themselves, but you'd get like 25 people with self-published novels, and they'd format it in one gigantic ebook, and then they would price it at 99 cents and or 2.99 or whatever, and everyone would go and and harangue their audience, saying, "Please help me. This is how." Well, I'm going to get on the bestseller list, and if everybody can drum up uh, 100 sales, uh, you land on the USA Today bestseller. And so you have people, um, and and uh, clearly the whole purpose of that, it doesn't generate extra sales for those writers. It doesn't like what it does is give them the claim that they are a USA Today bestseller, right? Right. So um, people right. do as if it matters. Uh, it's like blurbs, though. Blurbs is another example where it's not really clear that very many people are going to pick up a book and say, what Brandon Sanderson said, just plain awesome. I am going to buy this book. And yet writers sort of behave like it, Matt, right? And publishers sort of behave like it matters. Maybe it does. Hard to be sure. Yeah. And, and, and that's the gotcha is that, you know, and the, the dirty secret about some of these lists. And, and I argue that data speaks in, in, two ways it's either zero or one or more and uh, i've got one or more examples in fact i would argue the vast majority of the usa today bestsellers or those that use that moniker often didn't get there on their own uh now i i, I will say that i, I maybe i'm an idiot <laughs> Because, uh, you know, the three times I landed on the USA Today bestseller, it was on a single book, like any traditional author. You, you would think that's the way it's supposed to work. A lot of people bought it in a certain period of time, that single book, and it, land, and it was one of the top N number of sellers that week in the nation. Uh, that was great. And that was an 
accomplishment. But, uh, you know, the dirty secret is, is that if you look in many cases, um, you know, like Dave said, there was a book that doesn't any, actually exist anymore because it was 20 people who got together, slammed 20 books together, offered it for 99 cents, got all of their lists together. It was a coordinated marketing effort, and they did the same thing. But for 20 accumulated books, and um, you know, and, and you know, I, I could speak forever on why, why that doesn't end up gaining the author actually any good and it's uh, it's unfortunate for the reader because now you can't really depend on that moniker being a litmus test of is it good or is it you know someone who you know played the list a bit right so well it's interesting i wonder you know the usa today list shut down in december and i they didn't say why um uh, actually, I know why. I, I mean, the, the person who was in charge of it, uh, yeah, w- was laid off. Actually, oh, was so, that it? Uh, I mean, I wonder yeah, if a yeah. factor was that the 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 fact that the list was simply becoming less reliable as an indicator of bestseller uh, actual bestseller status. Um, I mean, I don't know that that's the that, case. But... That, 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 I mean, that that may have been some of the behind the scenes. I, yeah, I, I don't think anyone knows the answer to that. Um, but but you know, w- without a doubt, uh, it's not speculation. The the person who did it, I guess, for n number of years, you know, the last n number of years got laid off. And right now, that that was as of December. And uh, you know, whether the USA Today list comes back or not is, I think, speculation at this point. So. Yeah. Um, and, and I, I will note that there's at least one example I know of. Yeah, this goes back to that zero or one or more. Um, there's at least one example of the New York Times doing the same thing, not as in going away, but as in having given the the you know the bestseller nod on their list to to a book that doesn't exist anymore. It was one of those. You know, accumulation of twenty people who did the same thing. Really interesting. Huh. Now, my, uh, Dave, you mentioned the blurbs, and yeah. and that that brings up cover art because there's been a lot of discussion back and forth now about AI generated covers, and you look at the one that you've got here. Uh, this one is evocative. It kind of gives us a little bit of a hint of a lot of different things here. You've got the archaeological stuff. You've got the the sandstorm in the back that's maybe kind of kind of reminiscent of what we saw with uh, Brendan Fraser's mummy. You know, you've got the you've got the the glow at the top, so maybe there's a little mysticism here. It how how important is cover art? Because especially with indie publisher with with indie books, with crowdfunded books, the the artwork for the cover is not quite as good as what you'd find in some of the the mass market stuff. And and I know some of that's probably we can't afford an artist, but does AI make a difference there? How important is this cover art to, to getting people to grab it off the shelf? I mean, it's interesting. I think at the high end, there are indie publishers, indie players in the market who do get great covers. Um, and in fact, I think sometimes what you see recently is some 
traditional publishers, New York publishers, for budget reasons, actually sort of slipping and going to stock art and uh, silhouette covers and things. So, so, so I think actually those sort of fields overlap, and there are some indie covers that do do very well. So the reason we say don't judge a book by a cover is because, of course, that's what everybody does. Right. Right. And and so actually, I'm inclined to think that in the short term, the cover of the book probably has more impact on sales than the interior of the book. Uh, the long term, that's, I think, maybe not true, right? The, the book gains a reputation one way or the other. The author gets a reputation. Back catalog does sell. But uh, the truth is, you know, your ability to see what's inside a book is pretty limited. Uh, first 20 pages on Amazon or flipping through it at a bookstore, you are going to judge by what's on the cover. Yeah. All right. So t- let's uh, take me through what's inside the cover on this particular book. We touched on it briefly. You've got an Egyptologist who gets pulled back into uh, a situation because uh, he's gotten away from politics. He's gotten away from rivalries, having to take care of his people, play the occasional war game, try to make a good life. This is from the from the notes here. Mysterious visions begin to rob him of sleep. Soon after they start to get summoned back to Egypt, an off-the-grid dig funded by an eccentric financier has discovered texts that may be the earliest Egypt has produced, and it's now it's now it's coming to uh, more visions, an astonishing journey. His team of archaeologists finds itself in proto-historic North Africa, uh, dominated by monsters where humanity is badly in need of champions. I mean, this sounds like. Kind of a mashup between Stargate and the Lost World. I mean, I, I, we, I, I, I hate to we, put it in a box like that, but you know, we, we so so much nowadays. We talk about a book. We we have shorthand to to get people kind of into. Okay, this is kind of what it's like. A, a lot of people have made the mashup of Indiana Jones and Stargate, so you wouldn't be the first to at least mention parts of that. Okay, so, yeah. all right. I, I like the, the idea that it's a lost world book. Actually, that's not a com- that's not a comparison I've heard before, but I think uh, and maybe to some extent based on Mike's discussions, Mike's and my discussions now about the sequels, that that's pretty apt uh, comparison. Um, so uh, yeah, although you just basically described the whole book, so I don't know what to add to it. Well, how how did it how do you guys make it work with your approaches being so different though? Because Dave, you know, like Mike said earlier, you know, Dave, you're into the epic fantasy side of things. Dave's more, uh, Mike's more into the the techno side. You know, you've got a little steampunk thrown in there. I, I think probably. How, how, where's the where's the division of labor in this? So 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 that was actually pretty easy because. If you take a step back, I mean, yeah, we, we've fundamentally, as humans, been capable of the same amount of thinking and inventiveness now, 5,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. Um, so, so the ability for science or inventiveness isn't isolated to our current world. So, you know, so I think there was a tension between, you know, you know, I very much wanted to bring in a much wider audience than would normally pick up a fantasy-based book. I wanted to bring in a, you know, a thriller audience, which is usually less tolerant of you know, hocus-pocus. Right. Um, so, so that 
basically meant that we needed to have some guardrails on what 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 how the fantasy was applied you know, you know or or what or was the fantasy elements rooted in some way that could be explained with science and you know whether that's you know going back in time whether that's you know how, you know uh you know ancient you know ability to go ahead and you know just you know make a fire or or, or combat science i mean making bombs back 6,000 years ago, the, you had all the tools, you had all the ability, you know, all you needed to like do some, you know, hypothetically modern warfare. Yeah. You just didn't know how, but now you fundamentally have some modern people who maybe have some very diverse backgrounds, some with science, some not, and you have them in this ancient time. And how does that play out? I mean, you know, so there's a lot of tension with that. And, and then, you know, fantasy elements, like Dave brings in a lot of, you know, the epicness with regards to the battles and stuff like that. And, and thrillers, you usually have things that happen in the span of a chapter, um, where in an epic fantasy, you might have a battle that lasts half the book. Um, you know, so, you know, it's, it's a combination of, both traits where, you know, how do we make it believable for the normal person to come in, the re the thriller reader, and to slowly, you know, you know, slowly bring them into a world that shows some, you know, I, I won't call it supernatural, but some fantastical things that are like unexplained, but maybe rooted in something that is explainable. So. Well, I think, too, with the with the thriller type of story it seems to me and this is this is just off the cuff it seems to me that that one is a little bit more personal it's a little bit more you know individually rooted because you know you look at things like James Bond and the born identity and and those kind of things you've got your you've got your one guy where this thing is all happening to this one guy as opposed to like you right. say with with fan with big epic fantasies you've you've generally got an ensemble there's a there's a team that goes out you know put together my raiding party or my crew or whatever and you know the scope is much broader is much grander so is is there a is there a challenge in finding the epic and applying it to the personal how do you, how how do you manage to to do that and find that balance so, so imagine you, you do start off with a main character, and that main character finds himself tossed into, you know, having to deal with, you know, five other personalities that he didn't know these people, or maybe he knew one of them in the past. And, and it's not unlike, you know, you, I think any reader can imagine themselves put into a situation where you have to deal with some very strong personalities and you find yourself in a situation where you have to it's a survival thing if if i'm depending on these five other people suddenly you, you're you're the a-team and and you know and you're depending on others to pull their weight right and um i mean it, it, inevitably i, I think it's a relatable problem and and having the team with different roles with different abilities you know does lend itself towards that crossover you, you start off with the main character that's very relatable from a thriller point of view 
but you start to realize that this isn't just about one person. This is about a team, which, you know, kind of crosses that border of, you know, a, a traditional epic fantasy. Yeah, I think, like, practically speaking in writing, it's easy to exaggerate the differences between me and Mike or to sort of think some of these things were a challenge. I mean, once we had the story, you know, the process is basically uh, a dialogue back and forth and and proposals and counterproposals and compromises and, and uh, hey, I, this just occurred to me and, and, and the story builds out. I think on this specific point, there is... In our first draft, when we had finished it and, and done, you know, kind of some initial revisions, so I guess our second draft, um, basically right as we were handing it off to Tony to look at, we, we Mike and I realized that we had, uh, that we had done something that might uh, uh, be suboptimal. Um, which is kind of on this point, Jason, because we had we had designed our, our main point of view character most of the time is uh, uh, is Marty Cohen, okay, Kung Fu Cohen. Right. He is the, he's a martial <laughs> artist, but he's also a uh, s sort of former academic. He's a he's a gifted linguist, in particular with ancient Egyptian languages, and right. And he gets pulled into this most of the stories. His point of view, and he is the character who. Uh, kind of over the course of book one, really kind of becomes the leader. There are sort of a, a couple of leadership contests. It's not, it's not a huge subplot, right? It doesn't dominate the story, but he, he, he becomes the leader of not only the group, but kind of their following entourage, their army. Um, and we were sitting down talking about it and realized that we might have created a character who is not a natural leader, not naturally sympathetic to readers because he was a little cerebral, a little bloodless, a little kind of white collar, a little kind of academic. And so before we, so we, we discuss, what do we do about this? And so we said, well, he's, you know, he's got to get his hands dirty. He's got to be a little more relatable. And, and uh, so we, we, we put some, you know, some, some backstory elements in punching a guy, right? He doesn't, it's not entirely voluntary that he leaves academia. There's some indication of temper and, and, uh, and made him a guy who works with his hands. We said, look, what does he do when he leaves academia? You know, he goes back to, you know, what he, the crafts he learned as a kid and he's going to go and he runs a small furniture shop. Right. And, uh, so we gave him employees. So we had kind of, uh, existing relationships and an existing sense of caring for other people and being responsible for the welfare of other people right. to sort of make him the guy who could carry that idea of leadership um, uh, and not just be, you know, uh, the sort of atomized solo protagonist that you can have in a thriller, right? Like in a thriller, you don't have to have anybody else. You can just have Jack Reacher. He can be a complete psychopath or whatever, Right. right? Um, we had to make the character somebody that other people would follow and believe in. All right. Well, and along those lines, uh, besides you know, working on the character, you guys have to do a lot of world building on all of this stuff. And I want to get into that. First of all, we're going to take a real quick break so we can tell Google where to interrupt us. And we'll be right back continuing our conversation with Dave Butler, Mike Rothman, right after this. We have 52 reasons to listen to this podcast, but they may change in six months. 
This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. That's a huge question and one that I would rather not answer, but I'm going to answer it. Interviews with writers, filmmakers, artists, and actors. I was just kind of noodling on this very idea, so it's funny you bring it up. Good question. That's a great question. I love this question. Yeah. That's a good question. Count on Sci-Fi For Me to be there asking all of the questions. It's a really good question. Bringing you news and opinion from all over the web. Sci-Fi For Me, delivering the multiverse since 2009. Good morning, multiverse. Saturday morning at 11, 10 central, only on Sci-Fi For Me TV. The sign says, beware, and there's a lot, there's a lot to be aware of uh, in this, in this day and age. A lot of, a lot of crap going on out there, folks, but we are, we are looking at a different world today. Uh, Dave Butler, Mike Rothman, our guests, we're talking about the new book, Time Trials, and I want to get into some world building here because... Like you guys are talking about, the techno side and the epic fantasy side, there are a lot of different elements to those types of stories. So let's mesh the two. How much how much research, how much world building, how much uh, back and forth do you talk about proposals and counterproposals and making all of this fit together? How, how long did it take before you sat there and said, okay, we're ready to actually write the book. So I would say it didn't really take nearly as long as it would take for a typical epic fantasy. Because realize what one of the barriers to entry for, I think, a lot of thriller readers is that they're used to environments that they're somewhat familiar with. Many thrillers are set in the here and now. You know, so New York City or you know, some other place that is very relatable. Um, and so this story primarily takes place in ancient Egypt. Um, now, granted, most of us have not been there, but it's at least relatable in as much as it's, 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 a, it's a part of the world that people have seen pictures of, they can understand. And, you know, and the twists, you know, that are somewhat interesting, you know, are that, it's ancient enough that, you know, I mean, some people might confuse this with, you know, like, you know, well, no one would ever confuse this story with a climate thing, but facts being what they are, 6,000 years ago, um, the climate in North Africa was a little different, you know, um, and it wasn't as dry. So, so you start to appreciate and see some of the differences and the similarities of things that are, already set up for us for world, world building. So, so I think that a lot of the world building for us was relatively easy. Um, you know, I think a lot of our focus ended up being is where do we start? What's our goals? What are the events that are going to be key parts of the story where we're going to have emphasis on and, uh, you know, and kind of, you know, focus on those. Um, and, and, it, it, it made it, you know, easy to consume, I think, for most readers, you know, or at least that's the, that was the intent. 
Well, I started studying classical Egyptian in 2001. So there is a sense in which this book took 20 years to write. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The Egyptian language is not a big part of the story, but it's not a, it's not, not a part. Sure. Uh, We, we needed to get description of like how the hieroglyphs work right. And there was, there was like a, there was a, at one point, a, like a point about phonetics that we needed to kind of get right. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the, you know, so, so look, um, in what sense is this an epic fantasy? Well, you know, there are evil overlords or at least monstrous overlords who need to be overthrown. There is a party of plucky adventurers. There is an epic journey. And the journey was across North Africa. And so, yes, there was some research. It tended to be, you know, these are not, you know, um, these are not people in places we know a lot about, uh, you know, 5,000 plus years ago. So inevitably, there's going to be a fair amount of, of, you know, making up plausible civilizations based on, you know, a, a much broader kind of uh, set of reading. Um and so, yeah, mostly the research was getting getting things right based on climate and geography, trying to figure out if melons could plausibly grow, you know, in Morocco uh, or, you know, figs or grouse or, uh, you know, uh, questions like that. Uh, so mostly it was mostly it was this was a book that was written rather than researched. No. And and at the beginning of the hour, you guys talked about this being the first book. Was that always part of the plan, or did that evolve as this book comes together? Hey, you know, we could drop this here and drop this here and set up book two and book three. And was it was it planned as a series, or did it kind of just work out that way? Uh, I think we always had a plan for a series, and now now I think that, that there's still somewhat of an open plan as to how long the series might be um because i think we have a lot of flexibility and without giving away anything of the story of what happens in book one but um you know so but to answer your question yeah it was always going to be a series we we knew that you know it's not it's not that the end of the book you're at this cliffhanger and there's all these unresolved things um it's just that you know the big problem in book one you know essentially stage one of the adventure is complete but it's very clear to our intrepid adventures that there's more one of the things that i talked with tony about yesterday as we're getting through this is the the fact that you know you could throw a rock and you hit a series or a franchise or, you know, the, the intellectual property that spans the, the shared universe and all these different things. Is, is, is the single one-and-done book not, uh, not the best way to go anymore? I mean, do we—I know we still have them. And, you know, those those are still getting published, but it seems like every time I turn around, we're getting a new review copy of something that's, you know, number one in a new t- trilogy, a brand new, you know, first book in the brand new series and, and that sort of thing. Is that just how the market 
is is acting right now is there a is there a place for a single book anymore so, so i i can speak firsthand at least on on at least my my view of it um you know they, they may, these of you may, may differ and i think you know I, I guess i would argue that the answer may differ by genre um because i i have a couple examples of books that are very much in the techno thriller or kind of like a Michael Crichton type of storyline where it's, it's a one and done. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and, and oftentimes these are some of my best selling books. Um, and, and the attractiveness to such a thing, at least for the reader is that, you know, that you have an entire story, self you know in, encapsulated into one book and you're, you're going to get beginning you know middle and end and and there will hopefully if it's done well closure at the end so so that is the attraction now from a publishing point of view and i'll let dave you know um talk more to that but i, I would argue from a business side of things want to grow a franchise and grow a readership across multiple books um, because it's it's you know certainly it's more profitable I mean I, because I, I act also as a publisher for my own stuff so um, you know the, I, I'm conflicted every time I do a one and done but they've been doing well so I, you know I, I, you know to answer your question is there still a place I, I'd argue yes there is but um, you know, I've only exercised that as a Crichton like type of novel. Right. I, I think there's a definite perception on the part of aspiring writers out there that, um, that, uh, you know, series is the way to go, but that doesn't mean that they're right. Uh, there's also been a definite perception for a decade that hard magic is always the way to go. I can't tell you how many people have come up to me and said, I want to tell you about my magic system, which the answer is go away. Right. <laughs> uh, so, um, and, and there's a, there's a, um, there's a survivorship bias problem in looking at the market, like an aspiring reader or writer, excuse me, comes in and looks around and goes, Oh, everybody's got the big series, right? I need to have big series. Right. So they can talk to me and say, Hey, you're an editor of pain. I want to tell you about my 35 book epic fantasy series. Oh, how many of these are written? Zero. Don't tell me anything. I'm not interested. <laughs> Don't care. Cause you're thinking I will go, Ooh, the pitch is so amazing. I'm going to, I'm going to go tell Tony, you should buy this. Sure. Won't. I won't under no circumstances because you are asking me to commit to a massive investment of company resources on the basis of how excited you are. Not going to happen. Yeah. So um, I think in all genres, uh, now by the way, let me talk about TradPub and then I will address uh, indie publishing for a minute. Uh, I think in all genres, there is absolutely room for standalone books. And it remains the case that tactically, if you are pitching an editor, the uh, safest pitch is to say, this book is complete on its own legs, on its own terms, comes to a nice, satisfying conclusion, and there is room for sequels. 
You can credibly, honestly say that that's your safest pitch. That says the investment you need to make in me is small, and if it pays off, we can keep we can keep doubling down. We can keep betting. Okay. Now, uh, you know, indie publishing, and that that term means different things. But let's say self-publishing. Okay. You face a similar problem, but the problem is not with your acquiring editor. The problem is with your reader. And by the way, all of these series and verses, and by the way, if there's one thing I dislike more than hard magic, it's a verse. Everything's a verse <laughs> these days. Right. Stop calling your thing a verse. So, um, so wait, there's no butler verse? There is no effing butler verse. <laughs> Correct. There is not. Right. So um, you're you're making you have the same uh, investment challenge with a reader. When you go and approach a reader, you're not inviting the reader to spend ninety nine cents or ten dollars or twenty dollars. You're inviting the reader to spend eight or ten hours, which is worth a lot more than the money. Yeah, and you got to convince people that it's worth it. And look in trad pub epic fantasy. We ran into this problem where several big names that were the hot shiz or were going to be the hot shiz just stopped. In some cases, quite early in their series after they'd sold a bunch of copies, right? And that burns trust, and that means that other people in Trad Pub selling epic fantasy have a. It's very difficult. Readers will literally tell you, "I'll wait till the series is all out." They didn't want to. They didn't like waiting for Robert Jordan for thirty years, and then he died, right? And that one at least eventually finished. They don't like currently waiting for the people they're currently waiting for now, right? So, I think you will probably run into the same situation in self-publishing. So, I would what I would say is, don't do that. Put out single books, or deliberately put out a short series, right? If you write like a trilogy and you go, here's my trilogy, bam, 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 look, I can do it. You win some trust with readers, and then you go, now this is a seven-book series, and maybe, okay, maybe we'll go and invest with you, right? Um, if you are, uh, If you are saying this is book one of my 17-book urban fantasy series, I am sure you're, I'm sure there are readers. Because I, because I know there are readers out there who will buy and read anything that costs 99 cents. Um, but you're asking for a, for, for a reader who, to follow you and care about your verse and be invested in your characters. You're asking for a very big investment with, no, uh, with potentially no history to show why they should make that investment. Right. So, yeah, I would say write single books or short series until you have a track record. Absolutely. Well, and even then, if you're if you're talking about doing multiple books, I mean, you look at what you you, you mentioned Brandon Sanderson earlier and and in in the midst of the pandemic, oh look, I wrote five novels and we're going to start rolling them out, you know. Um Declan Finn has written a number of books in the in his in his series Saint and Tommy. they're all done. Yeah, at St. Tommy. And they're all done. And we're just going to roll them out on a schedule. But at that point, it's it's interesting to me that it almost seems like you need an editor even more because you're you've made this investment on in all of the series. Let's say you get out there and you get the first one out there, you get the second one out there, and it's really popular and it's all great. 
but you know, book three, book four, book five don't don't measure up in terms of copy editing style. Maybe there's a maybe there's a logic bomb that's getting ready to go off a continuity issue. You know, self-published authors have that challenge as well. Is is getting getting this in the hands of not just beta readers, but people who have some experience editing. And when I say editing, you know, you've got your copy editors, you know, your proofreaders and that kind of thing, but also your story editors, your people who go, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense because you had this character do this back here and now he's doing this over here and they don't line up. And, and you have indie authors that run into that probably more than, than traditional publishing. How do, you, how do you work through that problem? I, th- I mean, I think I- I inevitably... I mean, the, the indie space is very, very, very diverse in as much as, I, I mean, from a skill set point of view. Um, you know, wh- whereas I think TreadPub, you, you, you kind of hit on that, um, you know, key element that is usually maintained fairly well is, you know, in, in traditional publishing, if you're going to have 12 books or however many books, someone somewhere is making sure that you're at least keeping on track, um, you know, that you haven't introduced some gigantic, you know, logic holes or, or whatnot. Yeah. You know, I, people will argue, Oh no, no, no. I, I that, that, you know, on the whole, that isn't as much of a problem, but in indie, and this is where I, you know, I think a lot of indie sometimes forget that this is a business, you know, this is ultimately from an author point of view. Um, you're responsible for all of the same things that a trad pub storyline would put out. And, and, and the ones I'd argue that are successful are aware of that and they try to maintain. And, you know, like for instance, you know, for me, most, most of my books are, are indie published, but I, I have editors. I, I, I do everything, you know, I and other, you know, professional indies, do everything that a traditional publisher do, does, you know, whether it's the cover art, whether it's the editing, whether it's beta readers or otherwise, um, you know, and, and, and that's the unfortunate thing is that, you know, there, there are some that maybe are less careless or l- less careful about some things and, and you can run into problems. And, uh, yeah, I, I think this is where readers need to, gain trust and the only way to gain the trust is by putting stuff out like dave said prove that you can go finish that three book series you know show me that you can do it and that it's good and that you didn't you know call it in you know midway through or something like that um and and it's only after you've kind of proven yourself do you start to be taken seriously by a wider audience in my opinion I think that's true. I mean, man, there's so much to say here. Um, I think that's true of individual indie writers. I think that's true of the indie publishing scene as a whole, actually. I think there are readers that they're not going to it. Now, maybe they don't need them. Maybe they don't need these readers. But there are readers they're not going to attract until uh, they start taking quality, uh, again, on the whole, more seriously. So... Uh, look, I think there's a wonderful thing 
and this kind of gets into the question of what is an editor. There's a wonderful thing to self-publishing books, which I have done. And, uh, and, and that is the following. You can say, listen, I wrote this book and uh, no publishers are interested. They disagreed with my, uh, you know, uh, with my book on some level. They wanted me to change it in some way that I was not willing to do. Well, right. Mike, I know you've run into this too. Or like my vision is so eccentric that like I can't even imagine publishers getting interested in this. Well, the good news is that I can create the book anyway. Right? Sure. And the good news is uh, the services that publishers that offer can be purchased on a disaggregated basis. I can go out there in the market and I can say, well, I'm going to buy, you know, I'm going to hire you to do this kind of edit and that kind of edit, and I'm going to hire you to do a cover, and I'm going to hire a marketing person, and I'm going to hire – you can hire someone to do all the things that a traditional publisher – almost all the things that a trad publisher will do for you. Not quite all. Almost all. Uh, and that is all, and that is all good news. Um, there, there is a, there is a difference between an editor that you hire and an editor who acquires you, which is sort of worth at least being conscious of, right? So, so, um, by the way, sort of in TradPub, we tend to think of four kinds of editing. There's developmental editing, which is the guy who goes in and makes suggestions about the story and the book as a whole. Uh, copy editing looks for uh, continuity mistakes, right? R rationality kind of issues. Line editing goes in there and changes some of the prose, uh, right? Uh, and then proofing looks for risk mistakes, right? And that's the that's the theoretical order. They don't. It's never really quite that crisp. The developmental editor will also make copy editor line edit suggestions and you know fix mistakes that she sees and right. whatever. The, the, but the big, and you could hire all those. You could hire them in one person or in four people or whatever. The big difference is the power dynamic, right? So if I get acquired by an editor, that editor, although she has paid me, you know, $3,000 or whatever, um, can still choose not to publish the book, right? Right. So I, I'm in a position of negotiating, uh, hey, you know, okay, I like your... You know, you make a good point about my act one is kind of slow. I don't love your suggestion about having Tyrannosaurus come over the hill. What if instead, you know, I do this, right? Um, but you're always working with a partner who doesn't have to work with you, right? Doesn't, sure. doesn't have to. You hire somebody. If you don't like what they do, you just fire them. You may be out a little money, right? But at the end of the day, you have for good and also for ill, complete control right i think i think a lot of writers benefit especially if they can get it early from having an experienced editor sort of bump up against them and say okay listen you know this book feels thin the reason is it only has one subplot right let's talk about subplots and suggest a way for subplots to get in and in in a in a posture where that person can't be just dismissed or fired right so like in like i think i think the future they're you know, well, it's already happened. I think a lot of uh, trad pub authors who were successful also self-published some things, right? But I think I think I think there is a lot of benefit to a writer uh, to a writer's growth as the artist in having an editor that she cannot fire at some point, especially early in her career. Yeah, and I would I would point out one one thing that you know because my my entry into the whole publishing thing was very 
unusual. But um, but I think you, you bring up an interesting point in in, in that um, when an indie you know hires somebody, you know they they they're going to get the feedback. Whether they take the feedback or not is is up to the author. Um, but what's interesting is is I would argue that sometimes indie authors will go ahead and publish things that maybe, you know, despite the best feedback from the best editors, maybe some stories shouldn't be published, you know, because they're they're just not that good, but you've edited, you've gone through all the motions and, um, and, and, and it's very hard psychologically to just set something aside and, 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 you know, when I started, like, my first real publishing thing ended up, you know, Dave referenced it slightly, is like, you know, started as a trad pub deal that, let, let's just say that on the phone, we had a conversation about, you know, own voices and um, my being the right, uh, the wrong person to write a character <laughs> that was, happened to be African American. I was like, really? You, know, you couldn't put this in an email, I see. Okay, fine. Um, would you be willing to change it? The answer was no. Um, and the contract was pulled. And I went ahead and published it. And I got on USA Today about you know two months later. So uh, that was how I entered. But I entered from a lot of rejection, a lot of I'm not ready. And... Um, you know, and then when I realized, you know, I, I think I am ready. I've had a pretty good run at this. Um, so I, I, I've been lucky, but, I, but you know, there's sweat equity involved. Sure. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that's something that is, I, I can't emphasize enough. It's important. Well, and, uh, and, and some things need to get, you know, uh, scrutiny. Yeah. So. Well, and Michael, you you raise uh, an interesting point. You open a whole other can of worms that's worth another hour at some point because, you know, this question of representation and identity and and all that other stuff uh, also factors into this because you know, for yeah. for a long while you had the the publishers had certain certain things that they did for the author in terms of marketing and promotion and all that. And now you get into this uh, deal where, you know, we even see it in the comic book uh, industry as well. You get people who are in those positions of editing, and maybe they don't necessarily have the right qualifications for that sort of thing. Uh, I mean, we're seeing it now with with Silicon Valley Bank. I mean, this this is across various different industries where people are getting hired for the wrong reasons and they don't have the experience to bring to the table to sit there and say, let me help you make your book better. And, and that's a, that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother conversation. I think we need to have at some point and just bring in a whole panel of authors and sit there and go, okay, what do we do about this kind of thing? Cause I, I, st- I think that it's still a problem, especially in traditional publishing, maybe not so much in indie, but even then, we're seeing in the crowdfunding sources, you know, Kickstarter and Indiegogo are starting to get politicized along those lines as well. And your your options are, are starting to get a little bit limited on that front. Right. 
That is a very big discussion, Jason. Yeah, it, <laughs> it is. And we're going to have to definitely circle back to it because I do want to yeah. have that conversation and maybe even bring in some more authors uh, and and do a big panel on that one at some point. So so let's let's put a pin in that and let's definitely uh, have that conversation because I, I can think of a whole lot of people that would have opinions about that <clears throat> on both sides. Oh yeah. So sure uh, so let's so let's definitely do that. All right. So as we wrap up here, the book Time Trials, uh, it is now available at uh, Bayon.com and and wherever books are sold, uh, both electronically and physical copy. Uh, by the way, get physical copies <laughs> because when, when the apocalypse happens, they'll delete all of your stuff, right? <clears throat> They, that way they can't rewrite me and Mike later. Exactly. Uh, yeah. I mean, Agatha Christie's the latest uh, target on that. That's that's crazy that yep. anybody's doing that. I mean, Ian Fleming, Roald Dahl. Yeah. 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 Well, and you heard you heard the, that they did it at R.L. Stein, and he didn't even know it. Oh, I did not. Yep. Yeah. He was like, uh, yeah. no, nobody told me. So I imagine he's probably having some conversations. Uh, with some oh, I so, wonder if that he might have a copyright lawsuit against them. I wonder. I wonder. Uh, yeah, that's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because he didn't seem too thrilled about it. Yeah. So, all right, gentlemen, where can people find you on the web? Who wants to go first? Uh, mine's easy. MichaelARothman.com. And I'm on most of the social media, Twitter, Facebook, etc. So, all right. And yep, uh, that's it. And Dave is at David John Butler. Do you want David John Butler.com is the landing page, but you, yep. you've got kind of two sites because you write two different kinds of stories. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. It's, it's a landing page. It takes you in and, uh, yeah, I've got a trilogy out with random house of kids, of kids books. Um, and, uh, more as, as of yet not published books for those readers. Um, but, but then the other side of the landing page takes you to where I write for adults. But yeah, davidjohnbutler.com. My Twitter handle is davidjohnbutler. That's John with an H. I actually have recently, uh, I was going to say I set up a Discord uh, server. That's not correct. Someone else set one up for me. Um, but uh, I'm pretty active in it. And if you follow me on Twitter, I, I will every few days post an invitation to come into the Discord server if you want. All right, and uh, Mike and Dave both on uh, on Twitter as well. And we're going to put, we've got all of these links in the notes uh, as well so anybody can find you guys. And uh, like I said, we'll definitely have you back. We've got lots of things that we can cover and talk about and uh, and do that. Speaking of Twitter, uh, I can mention all of our stuff. Uh, we're on all of the different social medias, uh, different uh, video platforms there. We have a Discord as well. Uh, so you can join us for further discussions uh, for, of this topic or any of the other topics. Of course, if you have suggestions for topics, you can let us know. Send us an email live from the bunker at sci-fi for me.com. And uh, that's going to do it for us today. Tomorrow, open line Friday, which means you guys can talk about various different things. And I do have a reminder from uh, Bonsart in the chat that uh, bound for the sticks crowdfunding closes tomorrow so uh go check that out if you are interested we've got uh we've got that out there on kickstarter so that's going to do it for us today folks remember the politicians hate you the media lies to you but god has a plan for you and there are four lights 
This has been a presentation of SciFiForMe.com. Copyright 2023 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. You're listening to Sci-Fi For Me Radio.